0: In her 20s, for today's guest, relationships really weren't nourishing at all. They were an exchange of sex and power, and that was kind of it. But in her 30s, something happened that would change her and her life forever. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is an author and I would say very much a truth teller. She is Eva Hagberg Fisher. Eva, welcome to Mind Talk.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Eva,
0: you've written two books about architecture. You hold degrees in architecture from UC Berkeley and Princeton, so. Not, not such bad schools you have such an impressive background in architecture tell us how you came to write how to be loved a memoir
1: of life-saving friendship so i um it's because i can't be an architect i mean that's that's, that's one answer um i i fell in love with architecture when i was 11 or 12 and wanted to be an architect more than anything Went to Princeton, which had a great undergraduate architecture program, and discovered, to my great horror, that I could not draw at all. Um, I could not translate you know, the, the ideas that I had in my head into any sort of representation. Um, the computer didn't help. Nothing helped. I, couldn't, I just couldn't be an architect. And so my teachers were very confused about what I was doing and why I was an architecture major until... I wrote my senior thesis, and my advisor said, oh, you are really, really good at writing. You should be a writer. And it was the first time somebody had encouraged me, so I thought that this was total truth. So I packed my bags, moved to New York City, and started reporting on architecture and became a pretty successful freelance architecture writer. I was writing for all the major publications, publications. you know, as I talk about in the book, I was sure that I had arrived. I was sure that I was really powerful. I loved magazines, but I always wanted to write something longer. I mean, I really, really wanted to write a full-length, you know, a regular book without any pictures. But I didn't really have a story that could propel a book along, and I also just didn't have the skills when I was twenty-five, twenty-six. So I, in two thousand nine, um, you know, there was a recession and all of the magazines that I was writing for stopped needing me to write for them as frequently. I went to grad school basically to hide out and uh, have the debt to show for it. Um, but while I was there, I started taking a lot of nonfiction and fiction writing workshops. And so I basically I didn't get an MFA, but I took as many workshops as people who get MFAs take. And so I was sort of pursuing two tracks. One was architectural and then one was this creative writing. I just felt myself sort of getting a little bit better at writing scenes and a little better at dialogue and tension and timing and pacing and all these really um, the kind of stuff that I love to talk about. Uh, and and I was still thinking, okay, well, am I going to write about my childhood? Am I, like, you know, what is this book going to be? And I had a couple ideas for memoirs, but a lot of them, honestly, were um, they were because I was I was angry and I wanted to prove something and I and I wanted to you know, show everyone that they had misunderstood me. I mean, just, you know, not, not, you know, very amygdala focused, uh, motivations. And, and then when I was 30, I almost died. Um, and, and it was, it was an experience that was horrible and it rocked my world. And I, I didn't do it the way I'd seen other people do it. And I, and I looked for a lot of books to give me comfort and it was really hard for me to find the book that I needed. Um, and the book that I was looking for was one that that basically said, you know, hey, you do not have to be brave and positive and an inspiration. And, um, you know, it's okay to be really sad that this is happening. I remember just feeling so sad that I was so scared and I was so sick. And so that was kind of percolating in the background. And then what really happened is that, another part of what really happened is I, is I met this woman named Allison who was dying. And when I got really sick, we started spending a lot more time together. And I found that she was a guide not only through the world of really intense illness, but also through just being a really vulnerable human. And I remember when I first met her, I was so confused because she she would be so honest about herself. She'd say, I'm so scared. I'm so sad. You know, my husband died five years ago. I miss him so much. I'm still in pain. I was like, wait, you're allowed to do that? You're allowed to say the inside thoughts out loud? And, and people will love you? Like, wait, what? What is? Ha-? And she started loving me the way that I had seen other people love her. And so I realized when I was thinking about this book, that the story wasn't that, you know, I went to the doctor a lot and exciting things happened. The story was really this, this way in which having such an intense experience shook me out of, you know, decades of insecurity and judgment and fear. And it opened up this space and into that space came my friend, Allison and her love. And she, you know, this is where the title comes from. I mean, she taught me how to be loved. She taught me how to accept love, even when I was behaving without bravery, with a lot of, you know, really public crying. I mean, I would I would run out of rooms and fall on the floor. And, you know, I was being dramatic, but my life was dramatic.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: and that's, I just wanted people to hear her voice in a way. And so, you know, here it, we are.
0: It's interesting. You You begin your memoir with, and I quote, When Alice and I met, it was not love at first sight or second or third or even ninth. The first time that we knew each other, all I could see was that she was different from me. I was almost 30 and well. She was nearly 60 and sick. She was dying. And I would never die, I mean that's such an interesting, certainly way that you have put the words and the feelings together, but it is true that there is a point in in all of our lives when you know we kind of think that person over there is very different from me, and I am invincible. I will never die. Mm-hmm. I can do whatever what a i'm going to say kind of a shock when you come to face to face with. Oh wait, that's not exactly true,
1: is it? It was such a shock to me that I kept thinking that this was some kind of clerical error. I mean, this was the only way that I could really sort of start to see what was happening to my own life because I went from my illness was very sudden. So I was I was pretty much fine having really normal graduate student problems, which of course I thought were the biggest problems in the world and yeah, I met Allison and I thought, oh, well, she, you know, she has cancer and I don't, you know, it's meta like I hear these words, you know, chemo, sweet and metastasized, and I was like, okay, well, but you know, thankfully I don't have to deal with that. And um and then literally overnight, you know, I suddenly was facing this diagnosis that was really, really, really scary. And the physical symptoms were really immediate. And I was just, I mean, I couldn't walk, I couldn't really read, you know, I was totally, when you have a brain hemorrhage, it affects your brain. Uh, I learned. Yeah. Um, And I remember being so afraid of dying, that I actually, and this, you know, I'm ashamed to say this, so it means I should. it was the only time in my life that I ever felt suicide was when I was, when it was, when I was facing my own death. And I think now with a little bit of distance that it was the uncertainty that was, it was the uncertainty and the presence of oncoming pain and, and, and an expectation that my life would end that felt almost intolerable. And I remember thinking, I'm so afraid to die that I want to die. And Eva, I think that that's an experience that not a lot of people have.
0: Well, I think you're very right in that. Eva, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will pick up right here. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You are listening to Mind Talk in a conversation that I'm having with Eva Fisher, who is the author of How to Be Loved, a memoir of life saving friendship. We'll be right back. <laughs>
1: Eva, I n-
0: note that. as as you were telling us about your uh, thoughts of committing suicide, that you attached the word shame uh, to actually even having those thoughts. And, you know, one of the things that I often say to my patients is that shame, um, aside from the fact that it doesn 't move you forward it 's kind of like quicksand you know once you 're in it and you really engage in it, it kind of pulls you down and down and down instead, if you use the concept of curiosity. Um, It really is, I would suggest, eye-opening and heart-opening. So when you say that you were feeling shame about being suicidal, my immediate reaction is to be curious about the fact that you were suicidal. And from a perspective of curiosity, it makes complete sense. Your entire world changed almost overnight, and you had no idea what was going to come next, if anything was going to come
1: next. Thank you for saying that. That's, that's, that's very, I mean, shame is my probably most constant companion and my therapist and I work a lot on cultivating a, a we haven't used the word curiosity, but that's really what we try to do. It's like, Hey, you know, I, I have this image that I refer that I come back to, which is just this like slimy gremlin and it lives in a closet. And I am so afraid to look at what the gremlin is, but if I look at it closely with compassion, it's Absolutely. just me as a child just trying to have a hug, you know,
0: but I'll, but I'll be like, oh,
1: stop talking, go away.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's extraordinary what we say and do to ourselves, not realizing how much power we're taking away from ourselves. Absolutely. You know, as, as I was looking at uh, how to be loved, it seemed like you spent at least some part of your life trying to figure out where you fit you know you describe sort of scanning a room and trying to figure out you know where where your role was sort of on the ladder uh
1: uh in the room did that change for you it did and uh it changed a lot you know and i had an experience yesterday that that really solidified how much that's changed so I was invited to a very, very exclusive, fancy party at a very secret place that I can't talk about, uh, according to its rules. And um, and to my right was the spouse of a book reviewer, and to my left was a really nice couple. And the friend who'd invited me kept saying, "Eva, you know, talk to the talk to the, you know, the NPR person." But I wasn't connecting with with that person, and it felt it felt like I wanted something. You know, it felt like I would I would be taking. And to my left there was a woman who was a really avid reader Ah. and we just started talking about the books that we're reading and she asked about mine and I told her a little bit. And at the end of the lunch, I had, I had one copy of my book and I was like, Eva 10 years ago would have run for the person who could maybe, you know, get me on NPR, get me in the LA times, all of that. And I just thought, I want the book to go where it will be cared for Mm -hmm. and loved and held. And this woman I think that she will, she will care for it. And so, you know, I asked if I could give her a copy, and she was delighted, and we just had such a lovely human exchange. And I could see I was looking around the room, and a lot of people were looking past me and seeing who was behind me to talk to, and I just felt, like, how intensely I used to do that. And so part uh-huh. of my practice, having moved back to New York now, is talking to the person who's in front of me and being curious about them. Um, and that's the only way that I can find peace. As a human, which is all that I want. I mean, it's ultimately self serving. It's so that I feel peaceful and okay. Um, but it works. It works.
0: It works, and it's so freeing. And there goes that word curiosity mm-hmm. again. Mm -hmm. There there was a point as you were, I'm going back to the relationship you had with Allison, which is so powerful and so much, quite frankly, a part of of how to be loved. And there was a point at which she told you something that you had kind of heard before, I think. She said she found you abrasive and sort of hard to to get to know and deal with. Uh, Were you abrasive?
1: I, I still am. My mom actually <laughs> called me last night to give me some feedback that I had been abrasive, and I just thought, God, like, I can't. I'm still doing this. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm very direct. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I sometimes I overcompensate. I mean, I think I was sort of a, a wallflower for a while, and so sometimes I, I, I want to disavow that part, but yeah, I'm still you know, there's a section where, um, more than calling me abrasive, we sort of list my flaws together, and uh, and I think that I've covered all my flaws, and she adds, you know, five to ten more, and at the end of this section, I just, I, I said, you know, I was all these things, and I just said, I still am. I mean, I'm still afraid and self-centered, and I don't, you know, I have, a, I have to remind myself that other people's inner lives are, in fact, as complex as mine. I, you know, it, it takes... Yeah, so I'm, as my friend Honey likes to say, I am not for everyone, and that's one of the things that Allison said to me too. You know, she's like, "Oh no, you are not." Nope.
0: <laughs> but kind of sounds like a perfect New Yorker. My
1: <laughs> 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 oh yeah, <laughs> she's just. <laughs> She'll introduce me to a new friend, and they say, Eve probably not for you. <laughs> like, well, it's, it's good when people know who you are. <laughs> exactly. It is a delight to be known.
0: You describe a relationship with a college boyfriend uh, as being one of your easiest and, at the same time, most detached. And, again, the just the picturing that really struck me. Was it easy because you were detached, or was there something else about it?
1: That's such a good, that's a really good question. I I think it was easy because he's a really, really, really wonderful, kind, gentle person, um, and he also taught me to be, I mean, he saw me in very similar ways that Allison did, where he saw this sort of abrasive exterior. And, and he used to make fun of me um, being in public, and he would, he would see that my internal monologue was like, Eva, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. And, you know, we'd go home, and he'd be like, oh, you were keeping it together. And it was such a sweet thing that I just couldn't at the time absorb or register, um, which I have my own, you know, regrets about. But I think in a way also that my, my independence and the way in which I started to carve out an increasingly larger amount of space that was just mine, mm. and I started having very harmless secrets, and then I started having slightly more harmful secrets, and then this you know, really beautiful independence actually turned into us leaving, leading completely parallel and actually rarely intersecting lives. Um, but he's, he's doing great now. And I, you know, after 15 years or I guess 10, 12, I can't remember how long it's been. Um, there's just a real sense for me, at least of just appreciation for the relationship, um, and what it was. And I wanted some of that warmth to come through. I mean, I really, I loved our time together and I really cherished what it was and what it, what he taught me. Um, and I just wasn't ready to receive it. You know, I was still like, okay, this is great that you're being nice to me, but I need to go out and get and get famous. So, you know, yeah. see you in a couple hours.
0: You know, what's interesting about how to be loved, I mean, clearly there's the experience of having a completely out of the blue significant diagnosis for which I don't know that anybody's ready, but certainly you weren't ready for it. Who is, right? Uh, but it all. you also right. go through different kinds of relationships uh, with Tim, with Cameron, and ultimately with um, the person that you married. And I I just think that it's such a valuable, almost teaching tool for people in therapy in particular, people who are just looking to sort of find their way into themselves. You're so candid and, and caring with, I think, the quality of the sharing that you do.
1: That's so nice to hear. And I really... I wanted to use each of those relationships to offer sort of a different piece of evidence or a different type of evidence for really what I was facing. And then ultimately how I, I don't want to say overcame, but just how I moved through it. And so, you know, I, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday and I said, well, I'm very unique. I oscillate wildly between personality types and relationships and relationships she observed that almost everybody does that, right? So I was with a really quiet person, and then I was with this really extravagant person, and then I was with a really quiet person. And I think my, my husband is very much, um, he's very gentle, he's very loving, but he also has an edge, which always keeps me interested. You know, we were talking the other day, and we said, okay, we're so different. We're so almost unlikely, you know, as a match, but we're both still really... Hanging on to each other's every word. You know, we're still kind of like, what are, what are you doing in my house? Who are you? Let me get to know you. Um, and that spirit, again, I mean, curiosity is such a beautiful theme for this conversation. What I have now that I think I didn't have before is a, is a sense of curiosity about my partner. So I want to get to know him as he is. And all my previous relationships, I was assessing if they were the right fit for me. So I was constantly judging and assessing and thinking, okay, well, that's a red flag, and that's not a red flag, and this is a good sign or a bad sign. And with my husband now, I mean, I was just so, I was so sick and so distracted and so tired when I met him, I just didn't have any time to do that, and I didn't think I had a lot of linear time left in my life and so all of that was just gone and i just thought i'm just going to get to know this person and five and a half years later i'm still like who's this person i really want to get to know him (laughs) you know what's he gonna say it sounds like a
0: wonderful relationship let let me switch back to the diagnosis you you had a diagnosis that there there was a hemorrhage you had to have surgery major surgery brain surgery and yet, within less than 24 hours, the hospital was sort of saying, bye-bye, go home now and heal. That just seems, I mean, we all know that the world of insurance has changed medical care in significant ways. But the idea of having such a significant surgery and then sort of going home the next day, it's still kind of mind-boggling. What's your thought about that?
1: I agree. Um and I think that the fact that I almost died from a complication, which, which was easily preventable and I could have been easily educated about, is, is one of the more horrifying aspects. I mean, I had, I had no idea what to expect. I'd never had surgery before. I'd had no major medical experiences. And so, you know, as they say in the book, I was like, go big or go home, right? My first, my first medical procedure is brain surgery. Great. Okay. But I couldn't imagine... I mean, the type of pain that I felt, I had no idea that pain could be what I experienced. I I just, I couldn't have ever imagined it. And so I was really blithely unprepared. I mean, they also gave me a lot of steroids. So I remember the morning after brain surgery, I was like, yeah, I kind of feel great. Can't wait to get home and maybe I'll do some work. And once the steroids were off, that was no longer my experience. But, um, I mean, I, you know, I had a surgery really recently and I asked the doctor, I had abdominal surgery and I asked, uh, when I'd be okay. And he said, two days, yeah, two days, no problem. And I kept saying to him, you know, this is my third abdominal surgery that, that hasn't been my experience so far. You know, with this exact surgery, my experience has been, it takes me two weeks and he was like two days, I promise you two days, you won't feel anything. And I felt so unheard and so unseen and I, but I just couldn't get through to him. Um, you know, and I think that that is part of the pain of being a patient in America in 2000, you know, that was 2013 when I got brain surgery, but also 2018, 2019 is there's, and I imagine, you know, I've, I've tried to keep up on the doctor side of things, tried to have compassion for them and understand that they're dealing with so many things that make their job so much harder. Um and i remember when i was hospitalized before we found so i was hospitalized for seven days and we found the hemorrhage on the last day and my doctors came to me on the sixth day and they said listen we're negotiating with your insurance company but they they need to kick you out like we need to send you home now um even though we don't know what happened even though we don't know what's wrong the insurance company won't pay for another day
0: it's it's it really is extraordinary even we're going to take a break and then we'll be right back Even maybe your next book needs to be about the intersection between or the the difference between health care, true health care, and insurance care, because they're really very different.
1: I actually um I I was trying to, you know, do something creative with my experience and when I was in Arizona I needed to get an ultrasound and I videoed myself trying to schedule the ultrasound. And the nine phone calls that it took Uh to get various authorizations and pre-approvals and scan sent and doctor referrals and double referrals. I remember thinking, you know, there's something here. This is, and I'm very, I mean, I was, you know, I was in a PhD program at the time. So I was really, really good at assessing information really quickly. And I was still like, I can't, I mean, my insurance company right now owes me $6,000, but I can't figure out how to correctly file the claim. You know, I I keep doing it and redoing it, and they keep saying, oh, you actually need this. Oh, you need this. I finally talked to the person. I said, you know, I see that this is a transparent ploy not to pay me. You know, I understand that you're making this onerous on purpose. And she obviously could not speak on behalf of Anthem Blue Cross, but she was like, I hear your feedback.
0: Perhaps you should try the insurance commission. Um, sometimes uh, they can be helpful in in moving folks along. There is so much more to your story. Um, How do people find out more about you and
1: about how
0: to be loved?
1: So they can go to my website, evahagbergfisher.com. Uh, They can follow me on Twitter, where I'm at Eva Hagberg. I mostly talk about architecture on Twitter, but I'll also post my events. And then Instagram, I'm at Eva Hagberg Fisher. And I'm also on Facebook, at Eva Hagberg Fisher.
0: Now I'm going to ask you to spell Eva Hagberg Fisher.
1: E-V-A-H-A-G-B-E-R-G space Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R. So there's no c in the fisher okay and, and so
0: is there um like a hyphen between hagberg and fisher or no no okay
1: no hyphen space
0: oh, okay gotcha mm-hmm. all right eva again there's just so much more to talk about and so much more to learn about i so much appreciate the the way that you have written your story uh but certainly uh your candor in writing your story and in introducing us to allison she just sounds marvelous
1: Thank you. I I really, I'm excited for people to get to hear some of her kindness and maybe start to just feel like it's okay for them to be kind to themselves.
0: And Allison had the capacity to be pretty straightforward, too, in her own right. She did, Yes.
1: Again, Allison
0: Allison Hagberg-Fisher, thank you again so much for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you and so much. My honor, absolutely. And yeah, folks, me too. all right. Thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, health, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 communications. I'd love to hear your questions or comments about today or any mind talk program so do send an email to me at pamela pam E-L-A at mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And remember, MindTalk is available on demand, not only at the MindTalk website, but at on your favorite platform. There's also MindTalk app, which is available to you with your iOS and your Android uh, phones. And remember always... If it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care.